Welcome to the Military Culture Shift Leadership Podcast. This is host and author Corey Weathers. I just wanted to say a brief hello and also thank you for subscribing to the Military Culture Shift Leadership Podcast. This podcast is meant as a supplement to the book Military Culture Shift, the impact of war, money, and generational perspective on morale, retention, and leadership. This book shares the amazing and also difficult story of our service members and families throughout the two decades of war since 9-11. As a special bonus, I wanted to offer a reading of the introduction and the first chapter. So I hope you will enjoy the sneak peek into Military Culture Shift, and I hope that you will subscribe to the podcast where there are incredible discussions, interviews, and conversations that really bring the book to life. Also, be sure to scan the QR code that is in the book that will take you to a landing page where there are graphs and lots of other visuals that will bring the book to life. Thanks again for listening. And I really hope that you enjoy this leadership series. I'm Corey Weathers. You're listening to Military Culture Shift, a limited series podcast on the impact of war, money, and generational perspective on morale, retention, and leadership. wishes to fight must first count the cost. Sun Tzu, The Art of War. In August 2021, still reeling from an unresolved global pandemic, the United States military scrambled to leave a country and cause it had invested two decades in. There was a sense of shock at first. When you devote your life and family to a global conflict for that long, war becomes a way of life. Service members and their families stepped into a new void of uncertainty. American culture, with nearly 400 TV news channels, half a million podcasts, and more than a dozen social media platforms, all with live streaming, distributed opinions to anyone who would listen. As phrases like, this is our Vietnam, and was it even worth it, circulated, I started getting calls from military spouses. Many of them I had worked with throughout the pandemic in 2020, when I had opened up additional counseling appointments and virtual speaking events to serve military families. Others I had experienced life with, worked alongside, or even crossed paths with, and learned their story. Up until that point, families had endured a significant amount of stress with the high operations tempo of two wars. The COVID-19 pandemic had been excruciatingly hard for the entire country and world, but I watched the military community go through a psychological breaking point when asked for far more than they thought they could endure. As I listened, I noticed two things. One, Family members were deeply concerned about their service member's mental and emotional state. It's almost like he's reliving his trauma all over again. Years, decades even, of work they had endured as a couple and family to bring purpose out of a trauma seemed to suddenly dissolve. As news carried on with opinions, interviews, and experts, it seemed like our entire community was paralyzed with a thousand-yard stare. Spouses were scared and didn't know how to support their service members who, once the shock wore off, were angry, devastated, and drinking more, and some were even trying to find their own way back to Afghanistan to help. The second thing I noticed was a wave of unspoken anger in the military spouse community. 
It was taboo to talk about. So most pushed it down like every other opinion or need that was secondary to the mission and the pressing needs of their service member. I understood. My first book, Sacred Spaces, was about how my husband's deployment to Afghanistan changed our life and marriage. I had experienced the resentment of losing real, tangible time with my spouse only to have him come home changed by the violence and evil of war. Following that first reintegration, it took years for us to work out the fog that was smuggled home in his rucksack and instead assign some kind of purpose to it all. Spouses were now afraid to start all over. They too had invested everything in this war and wondered if they were about to lose 10 to 20 years of progress fighting for their family. They also harbored their own reaction to the withdrawal from Afghanistan and resented that it was once again not their turn to process it. The more I listened, the more I knew this was the sound of grief, exhaustion, and burnout. Like a shaken up soda bottle, the community was ripe for three possible reactions, implosion, explosion, or both. The pressure had been building for decades. Despite the best efforts of the Department of Defense to address singular issues like mental health, suicide rates, and sexual harassment, families felt largely unheard. Meanwhile, threats of conflict with Russia and China were growing, and the new approach to warfighting involved a more dynamic, quick-response force ready to compete with and deter foreign adversaries. It was becoming clear there was no peacetime to look forward to. For the last 15 years, I've had the privilege to do life with, work alongside, and study the very tribe I live in. I have listened to and taught families and service members of every rank and season of military experience through various retreat and training environments, and in counseling and coaching. From the youngest and newest military members to our highest-ranking military leadership and their families, I have devoted my career to understanding the complex experience of our warrior culture, especially since 9-11. As a mental health clinician, I view my role as a first responder to relational chaos. Trained to help people stop the bleeding, I work with families to look for patterns and problems and then walk them through the healing process. My office over the years has provided a safe place for service members and their spouses to process their thoughts and opinions. Outside the office, military culture has traditionally viewed emotions and convictions as a vulnerability to the mission and a service member's career. Beginning in 2011, I noticed certain shifts and trends in military culture that were affecting the morale of the force and their families. I also realized that the concerns I was hearing were not just isolated incidents, but common themes shared throughout the culture revealing a quickly growing problem of resentment and discouragement. Individuals and families were fracturing in a community I had come to love. Military spouse unemployment rates were not budging, geo-batching, or intentionally living apart from a spouse, was becoming more popular, food insecurity was being exposed, and serious mental health concerns for the entire family, especially military teens, were being published. An ever-increasing drip of headlines revealed that our culture was not as healthy as it once portrayed. It started slowly, around 2013, with government shutdowns and nervous anxiety around a slimmed-down force. By 2018, headlines like military families angry about damage, thefts during moves, and military families say base housing is plagued by mold and neglect started to surface. The murder of specialist Vanessa Guillen at Fort Hood, Texas in 2020 made national news, instigating a congressional investigation and a national conversation about leadership and sexual harassment in the military. Headlines like 14 U.S. Army leaders fired or suspended at Fort Hood further expose leadership failures to a watching world. 
Toxic leadership in locations outside of Fort Hood started to trend on social media as service members reported mistreatment in their ranks. Older generations who valued the institution's chain of command policy were shocked as younger generations publicly exposed internal issues in the force. Suicides, already at concerning levels for both active duty and veterans, were on the rise for officers and military spouses. This headline, the military has a suicide crisis, its leaders bear most of the blame, seemed to connect the dots between service member suicide and something going on with the internal cultural climate. Still, more headlines surfaced, especially as the withdrawal from Afghanistan came to its tumultuous end. Military suicides up 16% in 2020, but officials don't blame pandemic 2021. Senate report finds mistreatment of military families by housing companies 2022. One year later, troops and veterans involved in Afghanistan exit grapple with mental scars 2022. Navy investigation finds Hawaii water crisis exacerbated by unacceptable failure of on-scene leadership 2022. Pentagon links leadership failures to violence, harassment at military bases, 2022. Also in 2022, every branch of the military was struggling to reach its recruitment goals. Headlines like Lawyers Press Pentagon for Answers as Military Recruiting Crisis Deepens highlighted the seriousness of a national defense that was increasingly concerned about the numbers needed to fight and win the nation's wars. For those who were part of the military community during this time, it was overwhelming to take in every headline as it was coming out. Doing so would have meant processing what it said about the community we had come to love and depend on. In a world saturated with news, constant crisis, opinions, and debate, we learned to tune out the headlines as white noise, swipe up, scroll to the next story of war, political disagreement, harassment, and celebrity gossip. When faced with a large and complicated problem, especially one involving an entire group of people, most of us will respond with a variety of reactions, including adopting the problem as a new normal, settling for quick wins, or shifting blame. Some may adopt the current circumstances as attributes of the culture claiming difficulty comes with the lifestyle. The military community, for example, uses phrases like, we chose this lifestyle, or embrace the suck, even though the circumstances may be unhealthy, undesirable, or even dysfunctional. It is often easier to pacify our gut reaction that something is wrong, rather than face the overwhelming task of trying to change the situation. Some champion smaller, simpler solutions, eating the elephant one bite at a time. Large institutions, businesses, and organizations, for example, may be tempted to apply quick-win solutions to show progress on the larger issue. Many would argue that progress on one area of concern is better than no progress at all. In fact, attempting any solution is a noble effort. However, if the situation involves multiple problems and simultaneous, rapidly emerging variables, it is difficult to celebrate progress while the overall situation continues to escalate. Change within a system, or our part in it, is especially hard when it requires us to work outside our strengths. To keep hope alive and reduce the chance of weaknesses being revealed, individuals, couples, leaders, and even institutions try to solve systemic problems with simple and comfortable solutions. Date nights, for example, can help a couple reconnect. But when betrayal has blown a hole in the relationship's foundation of trust, they cannot be the only solution. The couple is going to have to get into the messy, dirty work of repairing the damage or risk losing the relationship. 
Addressing the underlying root issue that makes a system sick is difficult, overwhelming, and often scary. Another reaction is to simply point fingers or deflect attention in order to avoid the uncomfortable task of introspection. Some headlines, for example, blame recruitment challenges on Generation Z's inability to meet mental and physical health requirements, or the DOD becoming too progressive, or the nation's citizens being too far removed from the military. When Americans, Congress, interested recruits, and military leaders all contribute to a problem, asking one or two groups to shoulder the blame does not absolve the entire community from self-examination. The current state of wellness and morale in our military culture is not only a large and complicated problem, it is a wicked problem. Design theorists Horst Rattel and Melvin Weber were the first to coin the phrase wicked problem in 1973. Wicked problems are problems that are difficult to nail down, have constantly changing or emerging information that is confusing, involve stakeholders who have conflicting values, and are extremely difficult to solve, and that they tend to mischievously react to solutions with new emerging problems, which is where the negative connotation of wicked comes in. In addition, those who do present solutions, quote, have no right to be wrong, and that they are liable for the consequences of the solutions they generate, especially when those who are touched by the solution are greatly impacted. The social complexity or variable of people is what makes these problems difficult to solve. It is hard to say who started the use of the phrase wicked problem in the military culture. It is frequently and often casually used to describe problems that are extremely complex, multi-layered or dimensional, and presently emerging. General Stanley McChrystal is said to have used it in his 2009 classified assessment of Afghanistan. The popular spaghetti PowerPoint slide on the American strategy in Afghanistan is often referred as a visual example where he was quoted as saying, when we understand that slide, we'll have won the war. War, the pandemic, and climate change are all examples of wicked problems where solutions are not only hard to find, but simple solutions create even more problems to solve. The situation the military community is facing after two decades of war, a pandemic, and the withdrawal from Afghanistan is far more complex than the tally of those very big historical moments. It involves additional compounding layers of complexity grounded in cultural tradition, quickly evolving variables of the modern global culture, deep relational wounds, and most importantly, it involves people. Internally, the military culture is fractured by generational differences, exhausted from unrelenting expectations, and challenging the mission-first mentality. The outward manifestation of this wicked problem is a community that is disintegrating while facing the biggest challenge in recruitment since the military moved from the draft to an all-volunteer force. Since the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the country and DOD have quickly shifted their focus to modernization and new emerging threats to deter, while service members and their families continue to recover from the emotional, physical, and social impacts of the longest war in American history. Without a plan to reconstitute a battle-weary culture, the struggle will continue with the current mass exodus of millennials and Gen X military families and the recruitment of a younger generation weighing the visible cost of enlisting. We must be willing to intentionally address the systemic root issues that are disintegrating our military culture. A helpful framework for this is Rattel and Weber's design theory, which evaluates and assesses problems before attempting to test solutions. It, quote, revolves around a deep interest to understand the people for whom we are providing solutions. 
Design theory invites leaders to regularly empathize with people and actively challenge or examine assumptions and knowledge about a problem, especially when the problem is complex or wicked. This approach reminds us to slow down in order to examine the wicked military culture problem in the context of the people experiencing it. For the last decade, the military has been exploring empathy and leadership, calling it a soft skill that leaders need to develop. Nothing about war or equipping men and women for war is soft, and the last thing I believe service members want is to be soft or lead in soft ways. In fact, Gallup has studied talents and strengths for years and found that empathy is a talent that not everyone can leverage easily. After working with thousands of service members and their spouses on identifying and developing their strengths, I can attest that empathy is not among the most common top five strengths of service members. So while some may struggle to leverage it quickly as a personal leadership strength, no one gets a pass to not try. For now, however, I invite you to leverage curiosity. Storytelling can be a helpful tool that not only aids our understanding of complex problems, but helps develop empathy as we lean in with curiosity about the people within the story. This book is the story of the people in the military culture, especially after experiencing two decades of war after 9-11. We will pull apart many contributing variables compounded over time that resulted in the complex problem we face today and present a narrative to help you develop empathy for the people involved. If you are or were in the military, it is tempting to believe that you already understand the ins and outs of this tribe. I know I have thought this. When we have lived and breathed the values and traditions of the culture in which we work, it is easy to become overconfident and miss how the culture is evolving right in front of us. Our community has been so overwhelmed over two decades of war that many military leaders step into their long-awaited leadership role reactive and living in five-meter targets rather than mindful of what has changed. In order to help you truly understand what brought us to where we are today, let me tell you the story of the people you think you know, but could know better. The people you lead want to be seen and are more likely to follow when they experience a leader who shows a deep interest in getting to know them. I also wrote this book to inspire you to consider the influential part you play as a leader within your own circle of influence. Leaders don't always have to hold office or wear a specific rank. They just have to be willing to be the one to take a step toward change. When that step is in a direction that is beneficial for others around you, people willingly follow. Then followers step up and want to emulate what you have modeled, turning your brave step into a movement. The military culture. You will find throughout the book my use of the term military culture. For the sake of clarity, I am referring to the collective group of service members and families that have and are serving. There are also subcultures within the military culture, varying in customs, traditions, and experiences such as special operations, different branches, enlisted and officer, military child and military spouse, and a civilian workforce that includes contractors and policymakers. There's no way to capture the millions of perspectives and unique stories that intimately affect lives and families every day. But I believe there is a larger cultural narrative that can be told in order to help us begin more productive conversations about our individual stories and the ways we can avoid repeating past mistakes. As part of the process of finding this larger cultural narrative, I studied trends and issues and tested which were isolated incidences and which were culture-wide. I spent countless hours reading research, literature reviews, history books, documentaries, and news articles, 
talked with military families and leaders, interviewed and consulted experts, and polled the community to capture as accurate a narrative as possible of our military culture. I gained a firsthand understanding of service members' perspectives by traveling overseas with the U.S. Secretary of Defense to Afghanistan, Iraq, and Turkey, and on board ships in the Persian Gulf. This is my tribe, my people, and my friends. Much of what I cover in this book focuses on the majority of the military population, families composed of a service member, spouse, and children. I did my best to mention where appropriate the uniqueness of dual service couples, single soldiers, and couples without children. There are many other specific groups and topics deserving of a separate book to cover them respectfully, including the perspectives of lawmakers, policy experts, same-sex marriages, sexual harassment survivors, female service members, and the health and well-being of our military children. All stories are valuable to the larger cultural narrative. Ultimately, while there are hundreds of books on leadership and even more on war, military history, and strategy— what I felt was missing was a true understanding of military culture in the context of a deeply layered cultural story. We as a country and as leaders cannot make good decisions about the direction and capability of our force without a good culture and climate check. Unfortunately, our culture and climate are in desperate need of attention and repair. Shifts within the culture. If you are already a military leader directly serving military members and their families, you've likely noticed a shift in our military culture in addition to the weariness from war and the pandemic. Military leaders say it's harder to do what has always been done. While the culture indeed has gone through a significant shift from what it once was, hence the title military culture shift, this overall feeling that something is different is due to many simultaneous shifts. Generational shift. As the world reopened post-pandemic, military family events and programs were less successful. Leaders were frustrated with changing work dynamics and approaches that worked before weren't quite working as well. This was partially the military culture mirroring the same ripple effects seen in civilian culture. However, I believe it also marked a moment when there were fewer old guard and more new guard as a new generation filled a larger amount of the force, shifting perspectives. While we have been fighting multiple global conflicts, millennials have joined, served, and are now filling key positions of leadership. Gen Z is already serving and now building families of their own. The next generation is only a handful of years away from joining as well. Bridging gaps between military generations starts with curiosity and empathy. When we are willing to be curious about another person's story, we are less likely to try to convince them to adopt our perspective formed from our own story, and we instead become willing to look for truth in both. Both contribute to the evolving culture. The generational shift is just one of many that we will look at throughout the narrative. Seeing the military culture shift as new generations enter the community will help us understand some of the evolving trends that may be very different from what we are comfortable with or how we prefer to lead. We will explore each generation's background, core values, how they shaped the military community, and more importantly, how they developed their own unique understanding of what the military culture represents. Influence of War and Money While congressional funding may not sound like an interesting topic, the military and all of its programming and resources are funded by Congress, stemming from American tax dollars. This not only ties Americans to the military community in a meaningful way, it also makes the military culture vulnerable based on the availability of funds. Money is a very influential variable in how service members and their families experience even their basic needs, such as housing and food, as well as their experience of deployment and war. 
Additionally, World War II revealed that war not only brings the country together, it can be good for the economy as privatized contractors have incredible influence on our capabilities for war and modernization. The defense budget is a means of communication to the nation's allies and adversaries and is a deeply complex topic on its own. Understanding the rise and fall of available funding and how it impacts the military culture, especially during a two-decade global conflict, is eye-opening to the culture's morale and well-being. Influence of Social Media and Technology The evolution of technology touches and shapes every generation. Apollo 11's successful mission to the moon, inventions like the computer or graphing calculator, and the rapid expansion of the internet all shifted the way different generations work and learn. While the rise of cell phones and social media has significantly impacted all of society, its unique impact on deeply ingrained social customs and information distribution within the military culture is worth exploring. A community that is often isolated from external family members and friends depends on each other to share in the difficulty and burden of war. Shifts in technology and social media shaped the culture's cohesiveness and communication, and as a result, shook the very foundation of support the community needs to thrive. Shift in authority and trust. When military leaders describe change in the military culture, often what they're referencing is a shift in the way younger generations view authority. Millennials and Gen Z are demanding significant change from brands, employers, and leaders. Trust in institutions such as schools, the military, and Congress has been steadily declining for the past 40 years. Gallup reports that Americans' confidence was historically low in 2022, then again in 2023. Inspired by the global saturation of information and awareness, Gen Z may be the generational tipping point as it demands transparency over perfection and an authentic relationship based on trust. In an institution that is strictly structured on a hierarchy of rank and regulated through obedience, authenticity and transparency feel like a vulnerability. The military institution must realistically rely on numbers and a mission-first mentality in order to meet its objective to provide national security. Without the human dynamic of leaders inspiring, motivating, and even repairing their relationships with those they lead, there will be no one to fill the ranks. What can we do? There is a palpable tension between mission accomplishment and taking care of people. It's why the 2019 People First strategy was received with such a rousing welcome from tired souls who then struggled for years to figure out exactly how to implement it in the face of mission accomplishment. When leaders eventually find themselves pushing paperwork rather than picking up a weapon, it is often easier to simplify their role to its most logical primary purpose, to deter war and ensure our nation's security. After all, that is what the DOD states on its website and what many envision when they enlist or commission. However, the role of families as the backbone of support and force readiness has also been threaded throughout our history and funded as part of the mission, and families are included in a military leader's responsibilities. In 2014, General Raymond Odierno said, the strength of our nation is our army. The strength of our army is our soldiers. The strength of our soldiers is our families. This is what makes us army strong. His statement resonated across all branches for a reason. Most leaders I consult with admit that the day-to-day -day tasks of working on the mission are not anywhere as difficult as the relationship dynamics of those they lead. Managing a multi-generational team is difficult enough. Doing so in the midst of the largest technology shift in 500 years makes it overwhelming. 
Most leaders add that the fear of being canceled or publicly shamed leaves them paralyzed or wanting to avoid leadership roles altogether. All of these shifts and how they interact with the culture have been fascinating to me over the years. I love to look for patterns between people and then help inspire new, healthier patterns to teams and organizations and have been observing these larger patterns in the military culture for years. In many ways, stepping back to look for patterns makes the issues seem a little less overwhelming and opens our hearts and minds to the people. My goal is to share some of these strategies to help you succeed at both the mission and taking care of people. The best we can do is acknowledge this tension and strive to pull the two missions together. The institution can thrive when the people thrive. It is for people that warriors go to war and for people they return. Therefore, in order to win the hearts of future warriors, we must be willing to win the people, especially the families these warriors would choose over continuing to serve. We can no longer consider families secondary to the mission, but rather a critical component of mission success. In fact, I believe the essence of the people first strategy is that people are the mission. With this in mind, I implore you to understand the entire culture of warriors and the families they love and support by engaging with their stories. How to engage the story. When you finally arrive at a position of leadership, it's exciting to lead people the way you envision. You have likely considered the ways you want to organize yourself and your team and how you will implement your own leadership style. It can be deeply frustrating to be challenged by a generation that is asking for something different from what you set out to offer or what you experienced from previous respected leaders. Some leaders may dismiss this as immaturity and move forward with what they know, losing trust and loyalty with people in the process. Listen to the story. As a clinician, I've learned the value of taking time to hear the story leading up to the presenting problem. You must be willing to hear the story of the people in order to accurately identify and address the problems in front of you. Every great novel builds a relationship between the reader and the characters through a story of significant events that ultimately lead to the climax of the character's plight. In that moment, a reader feels tension and longs for a resolution. If you were to jump into the middle of the story without first understanding a character's motivations and perspective, you'd be less invested in the outcome. Most service members, volunteers, politicians, and civilian contractors rotate in and out of key positions regularly. Leaders have a very small window of time to make an impact, leave a legacy, or amass significant bullet points on an annual evaluation. It's difficult to get continuity from the leader who previously held your position, much less a briefing on the culture you've inherited. So, so well-meaning leaders jump into the middle of the story with great enthusiasm and believe they know enough to succeed, only to burn out soon after. We are at a historical inflection point in our national security and defense. People are leaving the service lifestyle. Fewer are joining, and senior leaders who spent two decades at war are flaming out in moral and ethical failures. When you are tasked to lead a culture in this state, it is helpful to know the significant events that built to this moment. Service members and their families have been trying to share their stories for decades. Now, pieces of them are being shared freely over social media across all platforms. Families are even being called to testify before Congress. By curating as much of the cultural narrative here as possible, I hope to arm you with a better understanding of where you land on the timeline, who is in your ranks, and how to bring order to what feels like cultural chaos. 
While it may be tempting to jump into specific chapters on topics of interest, I invite you to experience the narrative. Wicked problems challenge our assertions and invite us to lean in and discover something new within ourselves. Leverage curiosity for the people you work with as we consider solutions. Engage in dialogue. The generation of military leaders and spouses before me taught me that I should always highlight the positives rather than expose or complain about the issues. I have gained so much wisdom from them. However, as I raise two Gen Z teenagers, I can't ignore the fact that this generation demands authenticity. They are insisting on change with their feet, their votes, and their voice, both verbally and online. If we want to lead well, we must be willing to focus on the truth of what is in front of us, no matter how complex or disruptive it feels. It's important to do our best to put aside emotional and experiential bias so we can hear information honestly and clearly. One way to do this is to hear from a variety of service members and families whose experiences are different from ours. Doing so has helped me gain perspective and ultimately compassion. Our culture is constantly changing and evolving, and so are the topics of importance. Rather than offering solutions that would only lock the relevance of this book into a certain point on history's timeline and rush us into more quick-win solutions, I instead invite you into dialogue. For example, I'm aware that it is impossible to completely remove my experience as a Gen X officer spouse and mental health clinician as a lens through which I see culture. In many ways, I see it as a strength and a unique perspective that I hope will be an asset to you. Depending on what lens and personal bias you bring, there might be moments you disagree, see another angle, or have information that I did not. Are you an officer, enlisted, family member, policy leader, lawmaker, baby boomer, millennial? With more than 2 million people in the active duty culture alone, there is a lot more that could have been added to this project than taken away. Rather than reading from a critical lens, allow yourself to be stretched. This process opened my eyes to my privileged perspective as an officer's spouse. I've spent years glorifying the good old days of nice housing and supportive neighbors who helped me survive a very difficult season of deployment and reintegration. Recently, I saw a social media post of an enlisted spouse who had just given birth. She asked if anyone was available to pick up her husband and bring him to the hospital because they didn't have a car. That post was an important reminder to me that we all have different perspectives on convenience, comfort, and community. Rather than excluded, I offer glimpses into my bias and also authentically share when I notice it as a humble example of what I'm calling each of us to do. I've taken great care to recognize my own bias that could skew my perspective of the bigger story and encourage you to reflect on views that may prevent you from hearing the stories of others and leading well. Leadership tips and questions for discussion are available at the end of the book to offer additional ways to spark discussion or debate, open dialogue on tough issues, and inform you to make confident decisions. We each have something to offer to the conversation, so I hope this will encourage you and those around you to share your individual stories. Identify layers in the story. As I tested this material over several years in front of service members, leaders, spouses, and organizations, I found that the best way to communicate such a complicated analysis of a culture that spans several generations is to teach it in layers. There are some topics, such as the Vietnam War or U.S. policy, that I could have expanded on more, but since information about these topics can be found in many other resources, I opted instead to focus on presenting issues of our current force and understanding how those topics impact differences in generational leadership styles and family expectations. 
In some cases, I have pulled out connected layers to explore in more depth. For example, it is difficult to cover the millennial generation without taking a look at how the introduction of social media changed the way the military communicates and gets information. The impact of social media on our culture is an additional layer that is worth covering in a separate chapter. While reading this book, and as you apply this information to your leadership practice, recognize that you may discover overlapping and sometimes competing layers of information and cultural influences. Create understanding rather than blame. As our presence in Afghanistan came to a difficult end, I reached out to a mentor of mine, retired Colonel Robert Brad Brown, and asked if I could interview him. He had commanded our unit through a historic battle that is now in the history books as the bloodiest and most decorated battle from America's time in Afghanistan, resulting in two medals of honor, two distinguished service crosses, nine silver stars, and many medals with valor, and the loss of eight of our men. People wanted someone to blame, and even though the finger could be pointed farther up the ranks, we watched as Colonel Brown humbly and with dignity carried the weight of wrongful blame we knew was misplaced. As Americans and veterans displaced their grief and anger, looking for someone to blame for the way we exited Afghanistan, I asked Colonel Brown how we could handle our desire to blame while processing the difficult truth of our loss. He shared, Eventually, more of the facts will be understood of who decided to do what and why. And, you know, the military leadership is in a very difficult position. Um, they have to do their own analysis to say, what, what, what do I own about this? What did I fail to do? What could I have done differently to make this go down in a different way? But the same as where me as a commander, I, I was not going to go to the Washington Post you know, in person and say that, hey, this is someone else's fault. You know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff can't come out and say, you know what? Hey, we got we got handed policy constraints that were unworkable to do this in good order. And we came up with a plan that, you know, hey, was kind of a Hail Mary and we hoped it might work. But hey, this was a constraint. He can't say that. He would never say that. No, no senior military leader is going to come out and blame civilian officials, even if the civilian officials are not saying, not saying they deserve the blame. But if they even if they were, you're not going to get that. So those who are saying, I demand accountability of the military leadership to come out and throw someone under the bus, that's not how the system works. And that's not how the military serves our country or its elected officials. You know, that the, the ballot box holds elected officials accountable. And then, you know, the military leaders accountable to civilians and their and their superiors. And over time, the truth will come out and, you know, we'll see who made what decisions where and, you know, hopefully learn from it. With this wisdom, my intention is to not accuse leaders or the DOD for the state of our current force. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Only time in history can reveal the truth of whether there is a place for blame. Colonel Brown's words and example are a reminder that rarely is there one person or entity responsible. I hope this book informs you of the current state of our people, not so we can blame, but so that we can get to work on solutions. I also hope to encourage you to leverage curiosity, empathy, and a willingness to learn from those in even the highest of leadership roles who also have a story to tell. Together, we need to hold two truths, that people are doing the best they can, and that the institution must have people in order to function. Healing Nature of Storytelling the process of finding solutions and healing often requires slowing down and finding the truth, even if it is hard and even when it is complex. Many, many military families are thriving in the culture. 
Research has shown, and I've seen it in my own family's life, that the military lifestyle creates grit, character, and skills that families may not otherwise acquired. The 2021 Active Duty Spouse Survey put out by the DOD reported that 75% of those surveyed were food secure and 49% were satisfied with the military lifestyle. These stories are just as important. However, another way to read the same results is that one out of four families is struggling to put food on the table and more than half are unsatisfied and willing to leave. We must be willing to hear the whole story and maybe even lean into the truth we don't want to hear. Most individuals, and often families too, join the military because they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Many join to provide a better life for their family and a future they couldn't otherwise provide on their own. After two decades of a high operation tempo, a global pandemic, political and national division, disappointments in the culture, and deteriorating relationships in the home, weary and burned out leaders are joining the global movement to quietly quit. Some are turning in retirement packets earlier than they intended, while others are choosing to give less in their final years to a career that has taken more than they expected. Finally, if you are a service member, military spouse, or civilian employee, I hope this book is a balm to the wounds you have accumulated over the years in service to our country. I hope you feel seen and understood, and that you find your voice and your family's voice reflected throughout the pages of this book. I hope you will read and feel less alone. You are not the only one. I heard K.J. Ramsey, an author and counselor who works with trauma, say in an interview once how important it is for individuals to, quote, see and name rightly what happens to our whole selves in systems that treat people more like products or objects than people. I like what Ramsey said next and would like to challenge you to adopt it as a way to begin the healing process. She states that the goal is to help individuals, quote, better name the dynamics in their story, not to blame or point fingers or blow up everything. But if you can name rightly the wound, then you can tend it well. If that is not you, and you have thrived in every moment of this grand adventure of military life, I hope you will hear the voices of families reflected throughout and see an opportunity to lead well, whether you are a military leader, spouse, civilian, or policymaker. We cannot continue to look away from the wounding of our nation's service members and families while expecting them to continue to carry the burden of our nation. Families are breaking under the weight of what has been asked of them. Patriotism is at an all-time low, and even if it was right for national security, modernization has been prioritized over people. I hope you will be able to bring your unique strengths and talents to the table and cast vision for the people around you. Now more than ever, loyalty is won or lost in how we care for our most valuable asset, people. It is possible to positively shift military culture while serving the mission, and we have to do both. The Military Culture Shift podcast was written and produced by me, author, speaker, and military clinical consultant, Corey Weathers. It is a supplemental leadership podcast for the book, Military Culture Shift, The Impact of War, Money, and Generational Perspective on Morale, Retention, and Leadership, aimed to invite discussion in order to consider productive solutions for our nation's security and force of service members and their families. Copies of the book can be purchased on Amazon, militaryfamilybooks.com, and your other favorite retailers. More information, including graphs, data, and other resources mentioned in the book, as well as connecting with me, can be found on my website, 
CoreyWeathers.com. 